0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yes. Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the sixth, 2019. This is episode two thousand. Uh, 454 of the Survival Podcast and uh, it's Thursday and this is the other week of the other weeks and that means that we're doing two Just Jack shows this week, so today we're going to talk about choosing guns, in fact we're going to talk about choosing the six basic guns for yourself that will cover 99% of what anyone needs now I do want to be pointing something out here, I said needs I didn't say want I didn't say should have. I didn't say that like this is all you should ever have and you don't need any more, so don't get any more. I'm trying to answer an email question today and turn it into a show. I'll read the email when we lead off uh, the main body of the show today. But um, what it makes me think of is yesterday, I, uh, or d- two days ago, I put up um, a video of a couple of rat snakes that I, I caught in my shed uh, stealing duck eggs. And I'm a big advocate of not killing things you don't have to kill. So, I caught these two snakes and thought this is you know good. You know when you're when you do content for a business like you have a lifestyle business like I do and you have the opportunity to create some content to put on your YouTube channel or whatever, you don't waste it. So, and my grandkids were over too, so I wanted them to see it. So I caught this. It was a big rat snake, about five five and a half feet at least. And I uh, brought it in so my grandkids could see it. My wife shot a video of it. And I let it go over the fence. And I went back to get the eggs from the duck house uh, that I had left there when I caught this snake. And if I didn't, you know, instantly find another snake, uh, about a a two-and-a-half-foot, little or one, you know, about half the size of the first one. So I brought him back, and we did some video of him, and I put the two together. I, I called it Two Rat Snakes in Two Minutes, if you haven't seen it. And I put it up on YouTube. And, uh... Somebody said, well, you know, how far do you have to take them away? Will they come back? That type of thing. And, you know, I said, you know, basically, if you want to make sure they're, that that specific snake's not coming back, you know, you want, probably want to go like a mile away or something, because then they're going to try to find some other place. But this is how I describe the reptile brain. And I think when I read the email later to you of this guy's questions, you'll see how men... And snakes are very similar, not in some sort of way that maybe an angry woman would say, but men and snakes are very similar in the way they think when it comes to buying a gun, and like a type of ADD. So here's the basics. It won't be exact, but the basics what I said, it depends with the snake. Like It's going to go where it's going to go based on where it is. That snake's not thinking, hey, I was in a pretty good place. You know, if I go past the pine tree and make a left at the hay bale, I'll get back there. What that snake is thinking in its head, you know, and and I'm anthropomorphizing here in the words, and really shouldn't do that with animals, but sometimes it's useful to understand how they think, right? So the snake's like, gee, I'm glad that giant thing that just grabbed hold of me didn't eat me. I guess feigning death and smelling like shit worked. Oh, what was I doing? Where was I at? Oh, look, hey, there's a tree. That's dark under there. It's probably nice under there. I think i will go under there. And the way that that snake ends up in that coop in the first place is purely by chance. Because if snakes understood what coops were, your chicken coops and duck coops and stuff would have like a hundred of them in there because it's the perfect place. So the way it happens, a snake is, you know, doing a snake thing and crawling around and looking for places and looking for food and looking for other snakes to mate with and do a snake thing. And the tongue comes out and the tongue is how snakes smell it. So the tongue comes out and it's like birds. I like birds. Tongue comes out again. Birds and rats. I like birds and rats. Birds and rats and eggs. I like birds and rats and eggs. Ooh, what is this thing? Can I get in here? That's what the snake's thinking. And the answer to that question is yes, because rat snakes can get into almost anything. So the snake gets inside, and he starts crawling around, and he goes, I smell birds, and I smell eggs, but I I, I don't see. There's no eggs and no birds. Maybe there'll be birds and eggs tomorrow. I don't know. Oh, look, I smell rats. Where is that rat? I can get under this thing. Oh, look, rat nuggets. There's rat nuggets here. So he eats the baby rats. He finds the nest, and, like, he pigs out, and then he, like, it's nice nice under here. I'm going to go to sleep down in here. And he goes to sleep, and then later on there's, like, all these vibrations and stuff, and it wakes the snake up, and he sticks his tongue out, and he's like, ooh, birds. I like it here. I'll check later, I'm still full. So later, you know, he comes up and he looks out into the coop to make sure nothing's going to eat him. And he's like, okay, it's safe, comes out a little further, like, whoa, those be some big-ass birds, I can't eat those. But, oh, please let it be true. Please let it be true. Never have I ever dreamed that there would be an egg from such a bird. And they're like, oh my, look at those eggs, these are the greatest eggs ever, I'm going to be so fat. And so happy, I'm surrounded by eggs and rats. So the snake's all happy. Yeah, this is going to come back to how men think with guns. When I read the email, it's going to make sense, trust me. But then, you're the happy snake, and all of a sudden, there's this big giant thing. And it either chops you up in pieces and kills you, or it grabs you and throws you in the woods somewhere. And then we're back to where we started. What was I doing? How did I get here? Oh, look, that looks like a nice place to go. I think I'll go there. Snakes have that. They're in the now and in the now only. Men, when it comes to guns, we're not in the now and now only, but we have the same sort of ADD. When I read this email, you will understand. And we're going to talk today about choosing guns, using the wisdom of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, who most of them had three, and then there's like four other ones that they might have had some version thereof. And we'll talk about that as a core. And then we'll go through how we choose our own core guns for building that basic battery that will do 99% of what we're ever going to need to do. Again, I didn't say want, I said need. Before we do that, let's go ahead and talk about the week in history. And specifically today, we're going to talk about the day in history. So once a week, I like to do a history segment. Today is June the 6th. This is a, a, a date. That even a lot of people that generally don't know much about history, if you ask them what the significance is, most people know because it's such a big thing in American history. It's, of course, D-Day. This is the day that the Allied forces landed in Normandy, uh, France, set up initial beachheads, and began pushing the Nazis out of their occupied territories and eventually pushed them all the way back to Berlin. Of course, that, happened, that took a long time after D-Day. But D-Day is etched in memory because so many men died, and because even those that didn't die, and even those that weren't wounded, the, what they saw, what they went through, and the bravery it took to do what they did is something that's almost unthinkable. The level of bravery it took to be part of that and to do what you were asked to do the number of men who died, who didn't even die by enemy bullets, is, is, is astonishing. The number of men who died because when their landing craft opened, they were not in shallow enough water, and with all their gear, they drowned, is, is, is kind of insane. Uh, the number of men who, who you know basically got to the point where they thought they were okay. and uh, They thought they had gotten inland far enough, and then some stray round took them out. The number of men who died in planes who were shot down before they got a chance to jump out of them, in the, uh, the airborne landing, because it was about 18,000 troops that were dropped in through airborne, combined British and American paratroopers, mostly Americans. Um, all of it is just insane. And the entirety of the World War II uh, event and, and many of the battles fought, just bravery beyond all compare. And, and yesterday, you know, I talked about how conflicted I felt about being such a small, insignificant part of the first Gulf War. Very insignificant. And when I look back at why I was such a believer that whatever American America did was right, World War II is at the top of the list. Both of my grandfathers were World War II veterans. Uh, neither were involved directly anyway with D-Day. Uh, both served in the Pacific Theater, which was its own nightmare um, in different capacities. One aboard a battleship. Uh, in the Navy, and one is a military intelligence officer in, in, in the Pacific Theater uh, that I didn't find out till damn near his death that he was involved with the planning be- beyond uh, the atomic bomb. And when I look at World War II and I look at the way things happened there, I, I look back and say this is kind of the last time, I guess somebody could make a case for Korea, but really World War II was the last time that like what had to happen, what needed to happen, had to happen. And we were probably the only people that could step in and, and make it happen. Like, there were so many other countries that were involved. So many other people spilled their blood. So I don't mean to demean any of the allies of World War II, but I think without the United States, World War II goes completely the other way. And it was necessary. When you think about the evil that it stopped, it was necessary. And the men that fought that war deserve nothing but our greatest respect, But it doesn't mean that what they did and their sacrifices hasn't been used to shape young minds so that we will believe whatever they ask us to do, we we are doing as much good as they were. And I have incredible respect for my fellow soldiers, both prior service and active duty. I know the heart of those who serve, but I think it's time that all of us, not just those who serve, start to ask questions about whether or not this country needs to be intervening. But when it comes to World War II, and I know you can make a case, if the United States stayed, stayed out of World War One, there probably wouldn't have been a World War II. I get that. But when it comes to World War II, the answer was 100% to save freedom. That was when troops really did fight specifically for your freedom. The world was unsafe from the standpoint of freedom in World War II. And with the World War I argument, when people bring it up, this is the way I put it. If I accidentally set your house on fire, that's wrong. But if it's my fault, or I place some level of fault in it, and I'm standing there looking at a fire extinguisher, while your house is burning, and I don't try to put it out, because, gee, I might get burned, when I'm partially responsible for it, I'm more wrong. I'm more wrong. I have so much respect for the men that fought that war. And we should all think about the fact that there are so few of them left. And they are very rapidly leaving us. And it will soon be that the oldest United States combat veterans will be veterans of the Korean conflict. Anyway, with that, let's talk about guns. (sighs) All right. Uh, Let's talk about guns in a happier way. Now, you know, I just mentioned the World War II generation. And specifically, my grandfather, the one that served in the Pacific Theater on a battleship, um, he was the hunter. My other grandfather, he knew guns. He spent time with me. He taught me about guns. He took me shooting. But it wasn't his thing. He did it because I was his grandson, and he was that kind of guy. He would do things for you because you were his grandson. My other grandfather... You know, he, he wasn't the guy that enlisted in the Army. He wasn't the guy that became an officer. Um, he was a guy that was drafted as a young man. And when I say young man, back then people were drafted in their 30s. I think he was in his late 20s, if I remember right, when he was drafted in World War II. Maybe a little bit older. And uh, he was drafted in... Uh, he was able to at least have some say in to what service, if I remember his explaining it correct. But he was drafted into the Navy... Uh, He served, and as soon as the war was over, he got out. He came home, he went back to his life as a coal miner and a carpenter, and a hunter, and a fisherman. And the people where I grew up called him Biff. I'm not even sure to this day where the nickname came from. His name was Andrew. Andrew Spirko, and he did not have uh, Biff anywhere in his middle name. Uh, He just... Biff was just what they called him. And he was so incredibly respected by everybody in that town. And I never really knew him at the point where he was really like my age today. He was quite old by the time that I got to spend a lot of time with him. I spent a lot of time with him talking about guns and talking about fishing and hunting. He wasn't real active in it anymore. the point where you almost think the old man's a bullshitter but when you talk to the people in the town you knew you knew the guy was who he said he was he just he had gotten to the point now where all he wanted to do was have his friends around him his family around him sit on his porch pet his dog and watch his garden grow and he got to spend most of the end of his life that way and i'm grateful for that that he got to do that the last couple years were tough um but I did learn enough from him and from my great-uncle Pete, who lived just up one house up the road from him, about why that generation had the attitude that they did about guns and hunting. They served uh, with with other men in World War II. And there was something about hunting that took them back to the camaraderie of being with their fellow soldiers and sailors, Marines, going into the woods, being just the guys. On top of it, it was peaceful. The best part of their service was now with them, with the fellow men around them, but no one was going to have to kill anybody. If anything got shot, it was going to be a deer. And that was going to help feed somebody. These men also grew up during the Great Depression. They had all lived through the Great Depression. They knew the value of things. And hunting was as much a recreation as it was to help feed a family. So they valued the fact that the guns that they carried did the job that they were supposed to do. Keep that in mind as I read the email that spawned today's show, and with a little bit of humor in this now, unfortunately, overly serious subject, I didn't realize I was going to go this way with it, Let's think back to the snake story. So here's, and I have I've redacted some parts of this uh, to protect the person's uh, identity, because I don't really think a person wants to be known exactly where they are and who they are, etc. So uh, he says, I have a different take on a gun build question. I would like your help in building the ultimate prepper, hunter, redneck arsenal starting from zero. Based on your expertise and objectives I outline, I'd like you to tell me how many guns I should have. What calibers, what accessories uh, to most efficiently accomplish what I'm trying to do? My budget is $5,000. My situation this is where it starts to go snake and full on snake very soon. I live in Blank and have a 50 acre in, ranch in Blank County. Uh, ranch is overrun with brush. I won't get shots longer than 100 yards. I will occasionally help with clients for work. I'm in high-end sales. I can give you a bit of a head start. I currently own a 70s-era 12-gauge Revenington 1100 with new 26- and 30-inch barrels with REM choke. My dad is going to pass on to me a 30-year-old old uh, 22 revolver and a 22 rifle in the short term. Assume these are lower quality. Feel free to recommend replacements for any of these you think appropriate or just ignore it. If you think it makes a better question for a show. Starting to go a little snake ADD, right? Here it goes, though. My objectives in descending order of importance are deer and hog hunting, two, sidearm for protection for hogs, coyotes while working on my ranch, three, home protection defense, including potentially concealed carry. Note I have large hands, so I would prefer a large carry weapon for shooting comfort, four, teaching my young kids to shoot when they get old enough. Five, skeet shooting for me and my wife. Should I get a 20-gauge? Six, the large elk game, bear hunting on occasional trips. Seven, upland game, waterfowl hunting. Uh, Eight, pest elimination, grackles, rabbits, etc. Nine, the zombie apocalypse. We're going a little snake. Now here it goes. As I've thought about what to buy, a few questions are considered. 9mm, 40, 45 for a handgun? Two, should I get something like a 270 for deer and a 300 wind mag for a larger game or a 3006 for everything? Three, does a pistol caliber carbine make sense for me? Thank you, Jack, for all you do. I'm really looking forward to your response for Guard James. You see the issue? The guy's actually on point. He's on point with the basics. Then he starts to expand all over the map, and I guarantee you this would have been easy for that letter. It's probably my strictness on not going too long that made him stop. He probably could have went on for pages of, well, what about this and what about that? Don't feel bad, James. I do the same shit. Every guy ever that ever bought the first gun, the second gun, a new gun, or decided they wanted some new guns does the same shit. Let's have an imaginary friend. We'll call him Tom. Tom. Tom goes to the gun store. He's standing at the counter. He's waiting to talk to someone. In his head, he is thinking the following. The 6.5 Grendel is the most accurate round. I should get one. But what if I want to hunt elk? Is that enough gun? I better ask on something something forums before I make a decision. No, I already know they're going to tell me I'm stupid for that. I should get a 7mm mag, but all I really hunt is deer for now, and I have a deer gun. You know, the 6.5 can be in an AR platform. That would be good. But I can't hunt with that in some states. Hmm. I do like lever guns. They come in forty five seventy. That would knock down anything. But what if I have a long shot? Finally the clerk will saunter over to Tom and said, Is there something I could show you? And our friend says something like that Ruger there in three fifty seven Magnum, do you have something similar to it in a forty four? Friends, as I was saying at the beginning, our grandfathers had it down. We're gonna attempt today to build a base for James on the wisdom and from the guidance that came from our grandfathers in the way they looked at guns. But let's face it, in the end, asking a man to pick a single gun quickly for any need or want is like asking a kid in a penny candy store to pick a single piece of candy. Number one, he is not going to be able to make a decision. And number two, you know what that kid is going to do? He's going to come up with a hundred excuses as to why he needs another one. And guys, when we go to buy a gun, that is what we do. And I think the only way around it is to segment our guns into two worlds. And one is the world that James is really asking about, the core. This is my core. And then all this other stuff, based on our availability of funds and our desires and our real-world needs and our simple wants, we can expand from there. So the wisdom of my grandfather, I can sum up. He used to say this all the time, and I think, I think Jack O'Connor is the original source. It might have been Elmer Keith, or it may have just been a thing that those guys wrote about that goes back even further. Um, it's, beware the man that carries only one gun. And the continuation to that quote is, he probably knows how to use it. And another World War II veteran that I was lucky to be a, a boy and grow up around was a guy named Bob Steffen. Bob Steffen and his wife, Barbara, were very close friends to uh, the Spirico family that lived directly across the street from us. My, my uncle, uh, was my, who was my dad's, who is my dad's younger brother, currently lives in that house. That's, that's how close we were. They sold their house to him when they decided to move. Old Bob had a uh 30 uh, uh, Winchester, it was actually a Marlin rifle, but a thirty thirty Winchester caliber deer gun. It had a little four-power scope on it, and he used to come over to our house to shoot because he couldn't really safely shoot in his backyard, especially across any distance. So he'd come over to our place, and there was a, a stripping hole behind our house and kind of a bank you could stand on. And the distance across that was about 75 yards. So he'd go around the back, and he'd go over the other side of that. And this is, you know, like a week before deer season every year. He'd go across that stripping hole, and he'd somewhere there find a tree where it was a good place to do it. And he'd take one of those cheap aluminum pie pans or a paper plate, one or the other. And he'd, he'd you know, use a thumbtack or whatever put it up in that tree. He'd walk back around. He'd stand and offhand take a shot at 75 yards of that pie pan. If it hit the pie pan anywhere near kind of the center area of it, he ejected that shell, put it in his pocket, went and got his pie pan back, and said, Gun's ready for hunting season. I'm not suggesting that maybe that's the best course of action to take as you're getting ready for deer season or you're going to go on your dream elk hunt or whatever. But the man understood the point. I'm not going to shoot much further than this. And this gun kills if you hit where you're aiming. And if I take an offhand shot like this, and the shot feels right and the shot goes right, there's nothing's changed with my rifle since last year. I use the same cartridge, the same gun, the same scope every year, year in, year out. And that man put a deer in the freezer every year for like 50 straight years. That was the wisdom, and that was the concept of carry one gun. But Bob Steffen didn't have one gun. Like most of the men from my grandfather and great-uncle's generation, he had about five guns, if I remember right. But he had three. Three guns that were the core, and that's what everybody had. That was a twenty two rifle, a quote-unquote hunting rifle, and a shotgun. So if I was going to go out and plink, or I was going to go out and varmint hunt or whatever, I needed to shoot a woodchuck in the backyard, I wanted to pop a squirrel out of a tree, what have you, he'd reach for his twenty two. He had an old Marlin, I don't remember the model, but I actually ended up with that gun, and I ended up trading it to my uncle, and I kind of wish I didn't. But it was the predecessor of the Model 25, which is the old Marlin that I now have. I now have a gun that was given to me when I was a kid that's over 30 years old. That's crazy. Actually, it's... Damn near forty years old now, um, yeah. So it was the predecessor to that. He had that old bolt action twenty-two. He had his thirty thirty Marlin, and he had a shotgun. And if I remember right, he had a, what a lot of guys had from that era: uh, a, a Model Twelve Winchester Model Twelve pump gun. And that's what he had. That's what my grandfather had. That's what my great uncle had. My great uncle had a a, a uh, they called it a featherlight or a light. Uh, Model 12 Winchester pump it was very very it was like a pound lighter than the average one. He had an old pre 64 Winchester in 30-06, and he had a very old octagon barreled. I don't even know who made it. Pump 22. He had those guns. My grandfather had basically it was a uh, it was a Winchester shotgun, but a Sears branded semi-auto shotgun. He had a. Uh, Marlin three thirty six C in thirty five Remington, uh, and he had a old twenty two uh, rifle. He also had a Browning A five uh, semi auto uh, shotgun. That's what he had, and that was all that he had. And I now have that A five Belgian made Browning. That's something I'll never part with. There's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And so when you say only carried one gun, what they really meant was they carried one gun for one thing. I have a deer rifle. When I go deer hunting, I take my deer rifle. I don't buy a new gun. That was their philosophy. Why would I buy a new gun? That costs money. Guns are expensive. This one's got 14 notches in the stock from 14 deer that I've killed over the years. What do you mean that lessens the value of it? I'm not selling it. That was the way these guys thought. And then most of them, they only had that, but they might also have some other things. One would be a handgun. Some of them did have what you would think of as a handgun that we would consider a defense handgun today. Most of them back then, they did not have semi-autos. They had revolvers. They'd have a thirty eight or a three hundred fifty seven or something like that. And that was because they had it. Or they might have a war souvenir handgun that sometimes they weren't supposed to. An old an old 1911 right that maybe was an issued gun uh, maybe it was picked up off a fallen comrade and therefore it was not accounted for and easy for them to bring home. I'm just going to say that I grew up shooting 1911s and you can figure out how right but they had a they might have had a handgun uh, in the case of my father he had a 38 Colt police positive 38 um, they might have had a specialty shotgun that's how my grandfather felt about his A5. It was his duck and goose gun. It had a, a tighter choke and a little bit longer of a barrel. Uh, our friend that wrote in, James, said he has a barrel with a REM choke. That wasn't really a thing. There were some adjustable choke guns. In fact, his uh, his uh, Sears and Roebuck knockoff uh, was a 20-gauge. That was kind of the other reason he had the Browning. Uh, but it had one of those external chokes that you could turn and adjust. And when I learned about calipers and measurements, I realized that the markings on it that said this was improved cylinder, this was modified, were total bullshit. Um, that's why he got it shooting the way he liked and left it there. It told me not to turn it, not to touch it. Of course, the first thing I did was turn and touch it. Uh, so they would have maybe a specialty shotgun. And depending on where they live would determine whether they did or not have a specialty shotgun. You know, um, our grandfather's not so much but maybe our dad's. Might have had the shotgun with the shorter barrel and the really tight choke for shooting uh, turkeys uh, on the ground. Or they might have had the really long bolt-action marlin with the tight choke, like a 32-inch barrel, and they called it a goose gun. I knew people that had that very gun. So they might have that. If they lived in the south, southeast, et cetera, southwest, where uh, there was a lot of hunting of things like quail, they might have had a 20-gauge a, a uh, whether it be a pump, or maybe if they were a little more well off, they would have a double, like a lightweight over and under, or something like that. But they would have a specialty shotgun or two, depending on the need. If they didn't have the need, they didn't have it. A lot of them had 22 handguns. I have to say, almost all of those men had 22 handguns. The most common one they had was uh, like a single action Ruger 22. That just seemed to be like as much as the Mitchell 300. Everybody had those. That everybody had the, uh, the, the the single action Ruger 22 and then a lot of them would have some sort of a 22 centerfire uh, it was Pennsylvania so there was a lot of hunting of things like coyotes and foxes uh, and and groundhogs cuz groundhogs was that was something that I learned as a kid you go out and shoot groundhogs for farmers they let you hunt in the in the, in the fall when nobody else can get on there you can so that would be like the and that's where we're going to go with 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 ours we're going to take it down to this we're going to talk about picking a 22 rifle A twenty two handgun, a self defense handgun. This was like carry gun, home handgun. I think you should just buy one you can carry, whether you carry or not now. You want to carry it in the future, it'll be there. You know, make the selection with that in mind. A shotgun, a hunting rifle. And then we're going to talk about a small bore rifle, and then how you decide if there's one or two specialized guns that maybe you need, and why you shouldn't overthink this. We are going to bring it into the modern age. I love the fact that I got to grow up with those men and learn from them, but we do have things available to us that they just didn't. But let's start off with the 22 rifle. You can spend a lot of money on 22 rifles, 22 rimfire. Is what I'm talking about. I, I I don't really think that you should. And I think as you're as you're making this decision, you really you're going to come down. Because again, we're talking about the core, not like oh this is cool, right? Oh this is cool is later. I think you come down between a bolt action and a semi-auto, and I would say for most people, unless you're just learning to shoot and you need to learn to shoot, a semi-auto is the way to go, and it is, I, I, I it's very hard for me to recommend anything for that purpose other than a Ruger 1022 i only make takedown models and this and that, but the Ruger is where I would go for your for for your 22 rifle. It, it has anything you want to do for it, you can. It's kind of like the WordPress of of 22 rifles. Everybody makes something for it. That can be bad cuz then you start going back down that rabbit hole. Maybe I should put this kind of stock on it and this kind of trigger and all, but you can do that. It's also damn accurate. Some people say they're not accurate. Anybody that says they're not accurate, I don't think knows how to to shoot. Um, A nice something, you know, small scope on it. Um, I am a big fan of the Redfield and the loopholes, And like the 3-7 to power size on that gun is just perfect. A fixed 4 power is perfect. The other one to consider, again, with bolt action, I love Marlin. The Marlin microgroove rifling on their bolt action 22s, to me, for the money, they are the most out of the box accurate 22 that you can get your hands on. I think if you're going to be teaching a kid to shoot, it makes a lot of sense to start there with one of the bolt action Marlins. And um, I think for a lot of people, if you need to train and not so much train to get proficient with follow up shots and stuff like that, you need to train to become an accurate solid shooter that a bolt action 22 is probably the best thing. Because most of you are going to hunt your deer and your other medium to large game with bolt actions. Some of you are, but most of you are. So we should train like we we should train to fight like we, you know, we should train like we're going to fight. We should train like we're going to hunt. So I think that 22s are affordable enough that there's probably room in most people's life for a good quality bolt action. CZ makes a great bolt action 22 as well. And see, the thing is, when you want me to make a specific recommendation with this many different guns, I can't. And I'm not going to. It's a lot like when I used to consult... I wasn't going to waste my time laying out a full marketing plan for a company that I knew wasn't going to follow it. And if I, for James or anybody else, if I say buy this gun, this gun, this gun, this gun, this gun, and this gun, you're not going to do it anyway. So I want to talk more about, if you think about the way Alton Brown, the cook guy, right, talks about how to buy stuff for your kitchen. He's more like, this is what you're looking for. That's what I'm trying to do today. So solid bolt-action 22, solid 22 semi semi-auto. Um, Especially if you have kids that you're gonna have shooting, starting them off with that bolt action. The youth model twenty twos are great in a Marlin as well. Um and you can see where this gets difficult, because there I'm trying to give you one gun. I'm gonna give you one gun there. Ruger ten twenty two. That's your core, and then you do whatever you want around it. Next the twenty two handgun. Um I'll tell you that I have a ridiculous affinity for uh, the Ruger revolvers, I really do, and I can't think of the brand, but there's like kind of a knockoff version of them uh, that sells for like about a 120 bucks. Everybody I know that owns one loves it and says they're for, for a twenty two handgun. They're they're plenty accurate, so the revolvers are great. Um, I have a, a Walther P twenty two. I love it. I love that little thing, and the reason I kind of moved toward the semi auto. With 22 handguns is, I want the 22 to stand in for something else. I want it to do what it does, but I also want it to stand in for something else. So I am going, and I, I used to have a uh, a 1911 clone. I remember it was, uh, it was another German manufacturer that made that. Uh, it was a full size 1911 clone. I, I ended up trading it uh, because there were some things about it I wasn't quite happy with. But I don't really need my 22 to be exactly the same as my centerfire handgun. But if I'm carrying a semi-auto, I want to train with a semi-auto. I want to have that same, at least, follow-up capability. Um, I also think that there's a reason that people buy semi-autos. In general, they are superior to every other action that you can get your hands on uh, from a standpoint of follow-up capability. So I just think it's a better gun. So on the 22 handgun, I'm going to push you in that that Walther P22 is a is a great place to look. Uh, going back to Ruger, the uh, the SR 22s are a great platform. Uh, Smith and Wesson, if you carry a Smith and Wesson M&P, they make an M&P 22. They're all good. Oh, geez, it just. Dawned on me, the twenty two uh, revolver that I'm thinking about that will have a street price anywhere between like hundred to hundred fifty bucks. Heritage Heritage Rough Rider, uh, they're definitely something to look at. I have a Ruger Mark uh, Mark II. Uh, I like it. I got it for free. That's why I really like it. Um, I'm not a huge fan of those. Because of the way that the magazine releases and all, they're not a very ergonomic gun, but they do work very well and they, they serve a great purpose. So I would look to a semi-auto .22 handgun that is most analogous within what you want to whatever you're going to choose for your center fire handgun. Uh, Moving on to your centerfire handgun. I think your centerfire handgun should be a self-defense handgun. It's your primary thing that you should be thinking about when you make a choice on it. Uh, James said, I want a larger gun because I have larger hands. Yeah, no. I, I, I don't really want you to think that way. I want you to think that I want the gun that I select to fit me well and to perform well in my hands. The gun does not have to be large for the grips to fit your hands and the grips of most of you let's say a mid-frame mid-size uh gun are going to be about the same size there are some differences i personally do not like the feel of a glock i just don't i know people say well you know that's not true and whatever no it's me i'm making my decisions for me uh and you make your decisions for you my 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 advice on this Has never changed. I've been giving the same advice for over ten years on the air now. With this particular gun, more than anything else, this particular piece of your your you know your battery here. Uh, Go to a range where you can rent handguns. You know, kind of whittle it down to three or four different guns. Go rent them all and spend a day shooting them. And I know that in most indoor ranges where you can do this. You can't do mag swaps, and you can't do double taps and stuff. Yeah, but you can still load and unload the magazine, you can work the action, you can get a feel for it, and you can get some actual trigger time on it. And you can get a feel for whether or not this is the gun that you want to marry yourself to for the purpose of self-defense. I really hate this idea. Well, for home defense, I have this handgun, and for carry, I have this handgun. The reason I hate that is that if you're going to carry, when you get home, you're probably not going to put your gun away. You're going to find a way to carry comfortably enough that you're not putting your gun away until you take your pants off. Right? And then maybe, maybe not. And then that gun's going to go somewhere where it's easily accessible, you know, and it is most likely the case that if you need to defend yourself in your home, the closest thing to you is going to be that carry gun. Now, I know you could have like an under-the-bed quick open safe or under the mattress type situation or whatever, depending on the safety requirements at your home and have two different guns. If you want to do that, I won't fault you, but we're talking about a core here. If we're going to have a core that we're going to function stack, this gun serves the purpose of. As far as caliber, I'm going to tell you something that's going to get everybody pissed off. It doesn't matter. I wouldn't select a twenty-two for this, though it's killed more people than any other round on any given year. Just saying. Um, but I have looked at probably the best analytical study that's ever been done on handgun stopping power because all it did was take all the data available in actual shootings, whether they were criminal on criminal, police on criminal, uh, good guy on bad guy, bad guy on good guy. All it matters is somebody got shot. In an actual confrontation, and was shot in the core. They were shot either in the chest or the head or the neck, not in the hand or the foot. Those were kind of put to the side. And the difference between things like, well, did the forty stop more people or the nine millimeter stop more people? Did it? For, it was in fractions of percentages, mostly across the board. So you're back to what works best for you. Uh, what's available in the in the frame that you've chosen. I personally really like 1911s and 45 APC. not because they kill more people than 9 millimeters because I really like 1911s and I have gear for it and I like it. If I were choosing a gun for the first time today, I may not feel the same way and that's okay. But I do kind of see semi-auto handguns and I know there's some variants, but I kind of see like there's like the Glock family and the 1911 family. You know, if you look at something like a Springfield XD, it's very Glockish. If you look at something like a CZ nine millimeter, which I own one of those, they, I love that gun. Very good friend of mine gifted me that gun, and I love that CZ. It's a polymer frame CZ. It points, it feels, it acts. It is like shooting a 1911 as close as it can be without being one. Really lightweight, carries beautifully. It's nine millimeter. All of a sudden I like nine millimeters because it shoots well. I also own a SIG two three nine. It is a hell of a carry gun. It carries beautifully, it points beautifully, it's but it's very nineteen eleven like. That's why I personally like it. It came in forty Smith and Wesson. I'm just not a huge fan of the 40. I'm really not. But when I found out for hundred and something bucks I could drop a three fifty seven SIG barrel in that sucker, I fell in love with that gun. I started seeing that as something I liked a bit more than my uh, than my 1911. Um, it's it's good enough for short range hunting on mid sized game. Um, I've shot a deer with it. It's and it worked beautifully. So you're kind of in between there, and I think that it makes sense to kind of start from that. You know, people talk about Glock 19s. There's nothing wrong with them. Go shoot one. Get a feel for it. Understand the ergonomics of it. And actually put your hands on it, put some rounds downrange with it, feel how it acts, see how you feel about the way the the, the grip angle works with your, your shooting style. Um, if you end, like If you're new to this and you go shoot and they both suck for you, you just can't shoot yet. You can still make a determination on the feel, how the weapon points naturally for you, what the ergonomics are, and that's how you should actually make a decision. When people start this shit about, well, you should get this or you should get that... I just don't want to even go there. This whole kind of, well, this thing's a jam-o-matic or whatever. No, it's not. You know, if you don't take care of your guns, they will jam. Some guns, based on their action, if you shoot like a limp-wristed fool, you'll have more malfunctions than if you shoot, you know, with proper form. It just is what it is. There are low-end guns I would not recommend unless that was your only choice. Something like a high point. Though I think their pistol caliber carbines are great. They're also starting to get expensive enough that there's no reason to settle for one as they keep adding all kinds of you know space gun shit to them. Uh, when they were 240 bucks brand new out of the box, it was hard to argue with. Um, but when it comes to making that decision, I think it's largely personal. The Glock guys that are like 1911s, Jim. I'm sorry you don't know how to shoot. I'm sorry you don't know how to maintain your gun. I'm sorry you need a gun uh, that is built to the lowest common denominator. Why do you think general purpose cops carry them? Um, I guess that's your thing, but to me, you wouldn't have a, a frame that's been around for over 100 years and still incredibly popular if it wasn't reliable. It does have a capacity limitation compared to uh, the Glocks and uh, things like the CZ, which gives you the uh, the pointing and the feeling and the style of the 1911 plus the higher capacity and is a flawless working weapon for around 600 bucks. But I can't say buy this, that, or this. It just can't. Especially with a, with a handgun, more than anything, because it's personal. It's like me trying to tell you what laptop case you can get, you should get. It's a very personal decision based on your needs, your wants, and what have you. I will say that I don't like going super uber small, and I don't like going really really big. That mid size frame is kind of the place to go um, because what about nineteen eleven? You know, there's a lot of kind of scaled down nineteen elevens that carry beautifully. Just saying. Um, but that's the hardest one for me to pin down for someone because it is something that's so important. But what I think you have to let go of is the whole caliber mythology. Good quality bullets, right load, put the bullets where they're supposed to go, and they will do their job. However, I have seen, and I don't mean personally watched, but I have seen video, I have seen reports of people that have taken remarkable numbers of handgun rounds to areas that would you know, lead you to believe they would be fatal and maybe even eventually were, and not go down and not be stopped. What you have to accept when you look to a handgun for self-defense is you should expect if you ever have to use a handgun for defense, when you shoot somebody, no matter where you hit them, no matter how good you are, you should expect nothing to happen. You should expect that that person is going to continue trying to kill you or the other person that made you feel the need to shoot them, and you have to shoot until the threat stops. Now, a lot of times, I will say this, a lot of times, a handgun, when used in defense of a person or someone else, does instantly stop the attack, but just as often as it, because it incapacitated the person. They were hit in the heart and they started to bleed into their chest and they immediately just couldn't go on. Or they were hit in the, the neck and it clipped a vertebrae and they were paralyzed. Uh, they were hit in the head and it just killed them. As often as the case is that they were stopped because they were actually physically immobilized, it is often the same amount of time that it is they were stopped because they realized they'd been shot and they either went into shock or they thought, oh shit, I don't want to get shot again, and they gave up. When you look at the same study and they look at rifles in self-defense, they're conclusively fight stoppers. When a person gets hit in the chest with a 030 that generally takes the fight right out of them. So when we start nitpicking, but if it's a nine millimeter versus a forty, you're not even in the ballpark of reality. So you just let that go and pick the platform and the caliber that's gonna work best for you. Again, let's stay away from the twenty fives, the twenty twos and stuff like that, the mouse calibers, unless there's a reason. But from three eighty up I know some people just go, Oh my god, I can't say three eighty. From three hundred eighty up, the numbers bear out. There's not a hell of a lot of difference. Even cartridges like the 44 Magnum tend to not have that big of a difference when used in self-defense, though they do have some advantage. Um, the 44, 357 Magnum, 41 Magnum had a little bit of advantage, but not what you would think. Shotguns and rifles are fight stoppers. So when it comes to home defense, if you're thinking about that to the standpoint of wanting, you know, being, well, you know, I don't have to be able to carry a concealed or whatever, then you can look to... A, a, a carbine or a rifle or a shotgun for that, and we'll talk about that when we get to specialized guns. So that's I kind of went over the top, I feel like, and maybe made it worse on the self-defense handgun, but that's the reality. What works for you, functions well for you, and is in the caliber that you like is going to be as good as anything else. You're splitting hairs after it. Shotgun. Uh, our friend that wrote in has, I wouldn't even recommend, unless you want something more, that you worry about your shotgun at all. A, a Remington 1100 with a 26, I think you said a 26 and a 28-inch barrel, or a 26 and a 30-inch barrel. Let me look at that. Uh, I have a 26 and a 30-inch barrel, both of them with Rem choke. My recommendation for an all-around shotgun for hunting is a pump or a semi-auto with a 26-inch barrel. I don't think you can do much better. 28-inch barrel, I know it's only 2 inches, 30 is obviously 4. Um, when you start hunting birds and you're going through timber and things like that, that extra couple inches is huge. If you're going to go with a over and under or a side-by-side side double, you can go out to that 28 inches, it gives you a little bit longer of a sight plane, and you're collapsing in about three and a half inches, because you don't have an action, right? You have a breech face right up against the the the, uh, the chamber, so your 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 uh, your open, you know, your break open guns are going to be naturally shorter with the same length barrel. That said, a break action shotgun with a twenty six inch barrel, that is about the handiest thing for hunting. So I want you to, for your core shotgun, I want you to make a, a, ask yourself a question: What? am I primarily going to do with this gun? There is a big difference in a person that lives in South Texas that is not going to get out and hunt quail, and you're probably going to do something a little specialized for that anyway. They're not going to be going up and down the mountains that I ran up and down as as a kid, hunting rough grouse. They're not going to be going through cornfields hunting ringneck pheasants. The primary thing they're going to do with their hunting shotgun is sit out in a, a recently plowed field or next to a stock tank in a t-shirt, probably camo, but a t-shirt, and a vest with maybe a dog or maybe not a dog, and a couple other guys, and hang out and knock doves out of the air without doing a lot of walking. They'll do more walking to pick the birds up and knock down up than they will walking while hunting. Big difference in that, and someone that's gonna go up and down the side of a mountain in Pennsylvania trying to trying to find uh, rough grouse. Big difference in that, and a person that's gonna stand in a swamp all day hunting ducks. When I was a kid, I did all those things in Pennsylvania. Dove hunted, pheasant hunted, grouse hunted, duck hunted. I had a Remington 870 with a 26-inch barrel and an improved cylinder choke. And the only time I carried anything else other than that gun, as far as the shotgun went, was in spring turkey season when we'd be calling turkeys in. And then I had a fully choked 28-inch barrel. We didn't think in short barrels back then. I'll get to specialty guns in a second. That's why I'm a fan of the pump or the semi-auto with a 26-inch barrel. And today, you're a fool if you do not have screw-in chokes. You really are. I I, I don't, you know, if you have an old, like, my old A5, I'll hunt with that sometimes because it's my grandfather's gun and he's like, it's like he's there with me. Okay, so I get that. And I'm not probably not ever going to change that. It's a modified Um But for those, I guess I should, probably people that maybe are not in the initiated in gun terminology, choke on a shotgun is simply how restrictive the end of the barrel is. So the tighter the choke, the tighter the pattern. Therefore, the more dense the pattern of the shot, because we shoot a shotgun, we're shooting a bunch of pellets instead of a single projectile. Unless we're shooting slugs, we'll leave that out for now. And therefore, in general, the longer the shots we can take, or the more lethal the payload on something like a turkey sitting on the ground versus knocking a bird out of the air. Shooting things like geese, you know, when you shoot geese out of the air, you're really not aiming for the goose. They have that big, long neck. You're treating that head and neck like it's a dove, and you're, you're aiming at that. You'll hit body, but that's what we're aiming at. Uh, that's what makes the most sense. So when you have these screw-in chokes like REM choke, wind choke, etc., without changing that barrel out, we can just change the constriction on the barrel. Even with that capability, I am going to tell you that the majority of time, it is almost impossible to beat the flexibility of improved cylinder. I have knocked doves down. I knocked a dove down one time so far out and so high up. I was about 15 years old, and I remember my uncle saying, what the F, and he said the whole word, are you shooting? In a second shot, boom, and that bird folded, stone dead, and dropped. He goes, nope, never mind, right? So... The concept that we need more restriction than that for most of the bird shooting we'll do with a shotgun is not really a thing. However, you, you want to put a double in your hand, then I'm going to go improve cylinder modified. And that's why it's the most common thing out there. Now, I'm going to save thoughts on things like specialty. Because you may not need a specialty shotgun because of the flexibility of these swappable chokes. But I'm going to say here, you either want that, that pump or semi-auto or you want a good over and under. And I like side by side. I really like side-by-sides, personally. But I think the easier thing to become very proficient with is an over and under. Um, I am going to stick to my solid recommendation on the pump or semi-auto. On brands, it is very hard in my opinion, to beat the Remington 870. There's a lot of different options. But the lighter weight models that are designed for hunting is probably the way to go there. And again, I'm going to hold back on some of this till we go to specialty because we may not need as much as you think you need. Now I'm going to go to the hunting rifle. Bolt action, scoped, .30-06. Take your pick on manufacturer. CZ, Ruger, Winchester, Remington. I don't care. That's that's your starting point. Now we can go anywhere from there based on your individual needs. But if it won't do what that will do, if it won't do with the 3006, and I'll say the 308, you could take your pick out of nostalgia if you want to. In the field, the 308 and the 3006 are essentially twins. Yeah, with some heavier bullets, I can get a little more velocity out of the 06. And honestly, with some of the lighter rounds, because of somewhat higher pressures that are developed, I can actually show you some loads in 308 that outperform the 06. In the end, remember this statement. I don't remember where I read this the first time. I think it was o- Jack O'Connor said this, I think. Death does not come in degrees. Might have been Robert Rourke. But it's one of those ones like, man, okay, I'm done. Because I remember, you guys, if you've listened a long, sh- a long time to the show, you probably remember that when people start the whole if this and if that thing, that my saying that makes so many people laugh is, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Though I guess in the new SJW world that's not supposed to be true, but it is. The way that became a thing that I say, I had this shop teacher for wood shop in high school. And I did my two years, shop one, shop two. And then really there isn't any more shop, but I became a shop apprentice to help the other kids and stuff because I had extra time in my junior and senior years. So we used to sit around and talk while all the other kids worked on their stuff. And he was a big reloader and hunter. We probably would have both ended up in jail today for talking about guns in school the way we did back then. And uh, I would be like, he, I, he was a 308 guy, I was a 306 guy. And I would bring in load data and stuff, and hydrogen powder this and this that, and I. But if this and if that, finally, that's what he said. He said if your aunt had balls, you'd be your uncle. That's how the 308 and 3006 are. It's not worth worrying about. Um, but that's that's where I'm going to start with. I really love um, the Ruger as uh, your starting point for a bolt action if you don't know what you're doing otherwise. I am still kind of thinking like long term, like that classic gun that I'm going to have for the rest of my life, leave to my grandkids and stuff. That's the everything rifle, and Weatherby is very hard to turn away from. And so you can look there as well, either their entry level or their higher ends, like their Mark Fives and stuff. Um, but that's what you're looking for. Now, let's talk about James's question here because this is where it goes. Should I get something like a 270 for Deer, a 300 Win Mag for larger game, or a 3006 for everything? You know right where I went, right? The thirty oh six. The difference between the two seventy and the thirty oh six on lethality is almost irrelevant as well. It's almost like asking the difference between the three oh eight and thirty oh six. What the th- two seventy will give you is a bit greater range, if you are capable of shooting to the limits of the calibers, which you're probably not. Uh, a lot of people think the 270 is 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 not enough gun for things like elk, but Jack O'Connor shot the shit out of elk with a 270. The 270 is a fantastic cartridge. So you're kind of when you start saying well a 270, a 3006, a 308, what do you like? 7mm 08 is a fantastic round. Lighter recoiling and it is it's just one of the best and most underrated rounds out there. But what you want is a medium bore, 7M08, 308, I don't care, and a solid, good shooting, accurate bolt action. Savage Model 10, I don't really, I, it doesn't really matter. You're going into gun nerdism and gun geekism when you start trying to really, was well, this better than that? Let me tell you what I. I consider my, quote-unquote, deer rifle today. I have a very inexpensive at the time, $250 gun show special Savage Model 10 and three hundred eight. It's a bit heavy. It's not as beautiful as some of the guns out there. Do you know why I hunt with it? Because every single time I have pulled the trigger and something living has been in front of me, it died. I shot uh, a deer with that gun at almost 400 yards. And the the shot that I'm the proudest of is a couple of years ago where I shot a deer in full run with a scoped rifle from a shitty metal chair uh, at about 50, 55 yards and blew her heart out. I trust the gun. And this is what you're going to find if you actually find a gun you like and you hunt with it. You will develop trust in the weapon. And that is so much more important than the next slick ad you see in a gun magazine. But I'm going to say, since you're already leaning toward the 30 6 James, you go there. Everybody else, go where you want to go. You're not going to do badly with that. My dad's deer rifle was a Remington 760, which is a pump-action .30-06. They're a great gun, too. And now we're going to come to the small-bore rifle. Today, I have a different opinion than I did 25 years ago about this. I think today unless there's a compelling reason because you want to use this for sporting activities or something like that and the state you live in has a restriction against semi autos for hunting including you know even if you use a smaller magazine or whatever you can't you just can't hunt with with a small boar uh, in an ARF platform I think this is where everybody should consider an ar15 I think it is the perfect platform for what it was designed to do, shoot high-velocity 22 caliber rounds. It has incredible flexibility. You can get decent ones for in the $800 range, really good ones right at a grand. You can swap uppers and change out calibers. You can look to the Warlock system from Frontier Tactical, which I think is fantastic down the road, and basically pull barrels off of the damn thing and change out calibers to shoot different calibers. When... Equipped with the kind of flat top receiver and good optics, there is good a groundhog gun is almost anything unless we get specialized. So there's there, to me that's where to go. If I'm not going to go there, then I'm going to look again. I'm going to like to the Ruger American Ranch or something like that, and uh, in a bolt gun or maybe uh, a semi auto. But it's very hard for me to say for your core, don't have an AR 15. Because, you know, we had zombie apocalypse at the end. We had home defense in, in James's list. What do you want that, you know, a 16 inch barreled, kind of stockish AR 15 doesn't give you when it comes to that? And I know there's people that are AK fans and all. If it's what you want, that's fine. But that's not a small bore rifle now, is it? I guess there's the AK 7.4s, but. This AR-15. That is that is the easiest recommendation out of all these things to specifically say. Now, well, should I get a Smith West and Wesson? Should I get it? You know, I, I, again, um, there are certain platforms that are known for having problems, and I think you should research those and avoid them. Now, there are some that like supposedly have problems because they're less expensive, but when you talk to people that actually own them, no, they don't. No, they don't. I do think. That for most people, this gun, no matter what it is, should be scoped. And if you want to go with like red dot sights and things like that, you can. There's nothing wrong with them. I, maybe because I'm older, maybe because that's a newer, th- I don't know. I'm not a huge fan. Low magnification, you know, one and a half power optics that have the ability to come up to somewhere in the neighborhood of five um, are fantastic. If we wanted to start taking long distance varminting, we're going to go into the specialized world. But that's kind of my thing. So to give you, like, the, the if I had to just say, here's what to do: a 22 rifle, a 10.22 uh, Ruger, a 22 handgun, a semi-auto handgun most analogous to what your carry and defense gun is. For a stealth defense handgun, you're either in the world of the 1911 style, so you're like in a Sig 200 series. Uh, you are in a CZ, you are in an actual 1911, or you're in kind of the, the world of the Glock or Glock-like gun, so you're in a Glock 19, uh, you're in a uh, Springfield, or something like that. Okay, um, Shotgun, semi-auto, or pump, 26-inch barreled, uh, flexible choke, or something similar in an over and under, like a Ruger White Wing uh, double gun, or something like that. In a hunting rifle, your gold standard, and you're only going specialized off of this to do better, is an 06 or 08 uh, in a relatively lightweight, you know, 7 poundish bolt gun with a good set of optics on it. Your small bore rifle, you're in that AR-15 world, and if you want to do anything else, we're going to move now to specialized. Specialized guns. We could do a whole show on specialized guns. We could do shows and shows and shows on just 22 rifles. That's part of why this is so hard, because we are so blessed to have so many people that make so many wonderful platforms we can use. But let's kind of cover some holes left in this ramble that I've done so far today. When it comes to your shotgun, I think what you have to ask yourself is, what are the things that I want a shotgun to do that my plain-jane field gun doesn't do perfectly? and and could do significantly better. So let's talk about home defense. Short barreled, Mossberg 500, home defense extraordinaire. Again, home defense distances, there are no long shots. If you have a long shot in a home defense situation, you're probably going to jail. Because it's no longer a home defense situation. It's somebody trying to get away, and you're trying to snipe them going down the road. No, you are not going to have some kind of 1980s movie experience where somebody's trying to shoot you from 150 yards down your road. And in most places, that couldn't happen anyway. There's, there's something in the way. So the Mossberg Remington 870 equipped that way, there is a good case to be made. I can make a legitimate case. If you want a home defense weapon that you store somewhere to be grabbed when a bump in the night happens or what have you, beyond your sidearm, to go there. From a home defense situation, I almost can't do better than that. I prefer that, honestly, to even an AR. I really do, and if I'm going to make a recommendation for ammo on this, and I guess I should, everybody loves O Buck. It sounds cool. When it comes to reality, though, I think it is very difficult to make a case for anything other than number 4 Buck. Number 4 Buck is it has a lot more pellets and and one of the things people don't understand I think about what fits inside a shotgun shell, because shot is round, the bigger it gets, the less efficiently it fills it fills the available space. And it's exponential in how much space is available there. You look at the number of pellets, and I don't remember off the top of my head, a number four buck and even a two and three quarter inch, let alone a three inch shell, versus double O, and it's a lot more. And it's big enough to be damn lethal at home defense ranges. I wouldn't fault you for double O, no, for but number four is fantastic. With home defense, you really can look at a 20-gauge. You really can look at a 20-gauge. Because, again, it's still lethal. Number four bucket a 20-gauge, Man. Man, I shot raccoons, and raccoons are tough critters. I've seen raccoons take multiple nine millimeters and keep going. We had the zombie coon, uh, is what they called it at the uh, ITS, the first hog hunt. They, they they shot that thing like fourteen times before it died with a nine millimeter. Um, I, when I shot raccoons with a four ten and number four buck, a, lights out, done. Um, so you can look at the twenty gauge, a little bit lighter, less options in the tactical world, but that might make a flexible back and forth gun or I. Gun that maybe a child shoots out in the field, we swap out to a cylinder choke, and all of a sudden it's a home defense gun that looks like a field shotgun. Got me. But if I have to pin down, let's go specialized home defense, either an 870 or 500. Um, not necessarily extended magazine, you could do that if you want to, but let's go ahead and pull that plug out. Let's go with two and three quarter inch shells, because uh, we're going to get one more shell in even without extending the magazine versus going with three inch shells. All right. Um, On specialized shotguns for hunting, the two places I think you go are lighter and heavier as far as capability. If you're gonna hunt like upland game birds and things like that, the stuff I mentioned are gonna be fine. But if you're going to hunt like over dogs, even even things like pheasant, uh, if you're over dogs where they're you know dogs are pointing and you're pretty close when you take the shot, but especially if you move into like you're gonna hunt quail and things like that. I really think you want to look at a double gun in 20 gauge. They're much lighter frame, and you get plenty, like, you know, you shoot a quail with a 12 gauge, even with a loose choke over dogs, even with, like, nine shot, and you might not have anything left. It really peppers the hell out of them. So backing down, I mean, the kind of the classic hunting over dogs, double guns, a 28 gauge. You get into some money there. they are only really nice guns that are made that way, but that's kind of where you're going. Then the other side is turkey hunting, goose hunting, etc. The days, to me, of the 32-inch long, you know, Marlin or Mossberg freaking bolt-action shotgun with a super-duper choke for geese, to me, that's not necessary. Your standard shotgun we already talked about with a tighter choke tube put inside, it's probably all you need. You can make a case for, you know... Your, your pumps and your semi-autos, you can always buy another barrel for. Buying like a 28-inch barrel for the longer sighting plane on those longer shots, it helps keep the head down on the barrel and make a better shot. You could just add that. Um, but turkeys. Turkeys, to me, are the place where you might want to do a little bit more specialized. You don't generally take lots of shots with turkeys. A lot of guys have gotten really heavy on the um, short-barreled, single-shot shotguns with a tight choke for turkeys. Because a lot of times when you're hunting turkeys, especially in the eastern woods, you're going through some really thick brush in the spring. So you can look at that. If you, if, but if you can't shoot a turkey with that general purpose shotgun, you probably can't shoot a turkey. You're just doing it so it's more convenient. So just be clear on that. On specialized um, hunting rifles, I think now you're looking at are we going to step up in game size? is primarily what we're looking at, or are we going to be doing some real heavy brush busting? So, if you're going to hunt elk, there is no reason you can't hunt elk with a 7mm 08, or a 270, or a 280, or a 306, or a 308. No reason you can't, but maybe you shouldn't. If you're going to do general elk hunting and whatever, I mean, yeah, but... You got to think about if you're going to go on like a really big time elk hunt, you're going to save up and you're going to take that trip of a lifetime and you might be looking down the barrel at a 750 pound animal. Um, there's a reason that the 33806 exists. It's kind of this weird half wildcat, half not wildcat. It started out as a 333 O'Keefe. It was made by Elmer Keith and, um... Some other guy, and it was basically a thirty oh six necked up to thirty three caliber, and then the three thirty eight Winchester came around, and better uh, bullets were available. And somebody said, "Hey, we should make this, o- this O'Keefe thing better," and uh, they did, and they made the three thirty eight oh six specifically for elk, and that's kind of that medium you what you'd call a, a medium bore, right, and it's fantastic the 338 winchester great elk round 300 winchester 300 weatherby all of those i look at those as hopped up 30.06s to me if i'm gonna i don't have any problem with them they're great rounds they do what they do well if i'm gonna step up because i'm gonna be you know trying to kill bigger bodied game i'm gonna go up a little bit in caliber as well 35 Whalen uh things like that when you get into things like 375 H&H 416 Weatherbees, things like that you know African you're trying to stop freaking cape buffaloes and all you're in a different world that we're not in today kind of though the gold standard for that class of weapon moving up into that world is you know, the 3006 of that world is the 338 Winchester so if you're going to do a lot of elk hunting or something like that this is where I want to temper that if Well, someday I might just get a thirty oh six. just stop. Making a decision on what you're going to shoot from a day-to-day basis and going out in the deer woods where you're going to get 100-yard shots with a 338 Winchester that you're going to give your buddy in the next blind over ear damage from is not really a, a sane idea, in my opinion. You can do whatever you want. Pistol caliber carbines, because that was something James specifically asked about. I love them. I love them, I love them, I love them. I love them. And I like to hunt with them. I've shot a couple deer with a, a, a pistol caliber uh, Ruger, uh, not even a semi-auto, the Ruger uh, 77 three fifty seven. I want to be clear about that, though. I did that because I could. I did that because it was fun. I did that because it did limit me, and I did realize, okay, you have got a 100-yard gun here. Uh, I did that because people said it, well, it, would, it wasn't sufficient. I did that because I wanted to post a picture on social media of a deer shot at 110 yards with a through-and-through with her lungs blown out, which is what I got to do with it. I wanted to do it because I like the gun, because it's light and it's fun. And that's, I think, the biggest thing about pistol caliber carvings. They're light and they're fun. So one of the things James said is he wanted a gun that would be for protection from hogs and coyotes while working on his ranch. You don't need protection from hogs and coyotes while working on your ranch. Um, I have seen some people maybe cut a little bit up by pigs, but every time it happened they were hunting them with like a bow and arrow or something like that. Wild pigs are not the predators that we make them out to be. We try to romanticize this stuff. Everybody wants to go to Africa and face down their lion, metaphorically anyway. And so we try to turn these pigs into that. And when cornered or something like that, they can be that. And that's the same thing with coyotes. Coyotes don't just come after people. Um, and specifically, he was saying he wanted, you know, uh, a handgun for that purpose, um, as far as a sidearm. And see, your carry gun does that. There isn't a coyote that's going to laugh at you when you shoot it with a good shot from a 357 or a 40 Smith and Wesson or a nine millimeter. And pigs as well, like, yeah, they're tough animals, but the truth is most of them are nowhere as big as the giant ones people talk about. So your standard gun is good for that. Where a pistol cal- pistol caliber carbine might be really good for a guy like James, somebody with a ranch that's running around in a pickup or a UTV or something like that, that's great. And that's where you're kind of your semi-auto, um, you know, Guns that shoot like like a like you find an old Ruger Deerfield in 44 Magnum, great for that. If you've never seen this gun, it looks an awful lot like an M1 carbine. Kind of looks like a 44 Magnum version of a of a 1022, which is kind of what it is. And the 1022 is kind of like a 22 long rifle version of the M1. That's what it was designed to look like, at least in its original configuration. That's where it make a lot of fa- sense to me. Um, They make a lot of sense for guns to teach kids with because they're low recoiling. Uh, They are sufficient for taking out medium-sized game, and when we put a lot of these cartridges in them, they have a marked effect on velocity and therefore energy. When we take something like a carbine with a 40 Smith and Wesson, and effectively we turn the 40 Smith into its original older brother, the 10 10 millimeter. That's how much gain we get, assuming that the construction of the bullet is sufficient to handle that. Uh, when we take a 357 Magnum and we put it into a carbine, we get not there, but we start getting into the class of like an old 35 Remington. 44 Magnum is a sledgehammer out of a carbine length barrel, especially with the right loads and the right bullet construction. Um, Hornady makes a, it's either Hornady or Spear makes a, two, I think it's Hornady, 265 grain. Uh, semi jacketed flat point in forty four magnum it is horned and it was made for the four forty four marlin that ra- that bullet loaded into a t- hot loaded forty four mag case out of a carbine length barrel is a sledgehammer and that 's where I kind of see these things being either the guy that wants to challenge himself and knows he's not going to take long shots on deer anyway for those mid that mid- medium sized game bouncing around on a ranch coyotes pigs things like that. That said, do you know what does that? That AR-15. Do you want that thing bouncing around in your truck? That's kind of where you got to make that decision, you know. But an AR-15, man, I feel like, you know, you can't shoot pigs with ar Man, do you know how many pigs get shot in Texas with AR-15? I was going to say all of them as a joke, but lots of them. Lots of them. Most pigs in Texas are shot because the guy's out deer hunting and his 308, his 308, so whatever he's shooting deer with, he shoots a pig with. It's usually overkill. Probably kind of the sweet spot for feral hogs in Texas and for our deer, the size of our deer, is something we haven't even talked about today a 243. So that's where I want to go next with specialized. That 243, 6 millimeter, 6.5 millimeter, you know, the Grendel, the um, 260 Remington. 6.5 suite, all of those rounds in that class from like 6mm, 6.5mm are, are really great uh, mid-size game uh, rounds. And if you're going to do a lot of that, and you're kind of looking for a lighter weight rifle that won't beat you up with recoil, it's hard to beat anything, that, That's whether it's an AR platform with the 6.5 Grendel, whether it's a little Ruger in 243. Uh, you know, a Remington Mountain Rifle in 243, something like that. Is that truck gun? Is that everyday gun? Is that opportunistic gun? Uh, is that hunting rifle for a teenager that's going to grow up and not outgrow it? So that's kind of where I'm going to put that in today. So I know, that, like, I talk about this guy rambling with his questions, and I kind of feel like I rambled today. But what I'm trying to get across to you guys with with selecting these guns is it does come down to finding what works for you. And it comes back, and I want to bring this back to how our great-grandparents and our grandparents would look at us today when we do all this. They would think we're nuts. They would wonder why they spent 50 years, 60 years, taking care of the guns that they had, and we don't feel that they're good enough for us. Now... You know, when Grandpa passes away and there's seven grandchildren and uh, two or three sons still around, not everybody gets the deer rifle. So maybe it wouldn't be a direct hand hand down, but they would wonder why we don't just want to, like, look back and go, well, Grandpa had a pre-'64 Model 70. Maybe I can find one of those or buy one of the modern versions of it. Grandpa always used the .30-06. Why don't I do that? They'd wonder because they fed their family for decades. And all of a sudden, we seem to act today like freaking 120-pound feral hog is like trying to shoot a rhinoceros on the plains of Africa. They'd wonder why we think we need something so special when what they made their weapons special with was what they did with them. There's a reason that Bob Steffen carried that 30 30 until the day that he died, every time he picked it up. Every time he picked it up, he remembered every deer that he ever took with it. And every deer that he ever took, he took with that gun. And I think that when we're building our core, part of us knows this wisdom. And this is why we get so fidgety about it. We do feel like almost we're marrying the gun. Like this is going to be my deer rifle. This is going to be the gun that I have hand out to my kid. And that's why it's okay to be fidgety and fussy and uh, this and that. But in the end, if we stick to kind of the classics and then accept the fact that it's 2019 and we have, you know, triggers today that weren't even a thing 50 years ago. We have optics today that can do things that optics couldn't do 50 years ago. That we have weapons today that are better made, more accurate than anything ever made. People always talk about they don't make them like they used to. When it comes to guns, mostly, now, you know, there's some beautiful things that individual gunsmiths did with engraved drillings and stuff like that, yeah. A drilling, by the way, if uh, anybody throwing a, a drilling is not a technique, a drilling is a gun. A drilling is a gun that would be something like uh, two rifle cartridges and a side-by-side over top of a shotgun. Was a very popular thing in Africa back in the day. Um, but, you know, there's stuff like that. But when it comes to what you can go down to a gun store and buy in a box off the shelf, the guns that are being made today are, in general, better than they've ever been. They're going to be something you can hand down to your kids. And I think the reason to build your core is so that then you can just go crazy within your budget and your time constraints and responsibilities of whatever you want beyond it. But having that core and remembering that day I knocked that first grouse down, I did it with this shotgun, and I I hope someday to put it in my grandkids' hands. I think there's more to that than there ever will be to whatever they put in the next issue of shooting times or outdoor life or whatever. So hopefully it wasn't too much of a rant today, and hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, If you have questions on guns, don't get me wrong. I will drill down on it if you ask me for one specific thing. I like doing the gun builds, but with something this broad, I had to do it this way. With that, we have wrapped up. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And uh, let me remind you, if you want to support this show, one of the ways you can do it is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. When it comes to having a core of things... One of the things we should have a core to, and then we can play around with it on the peripherals, is EDC, or everyday carry. The product I'm going to have for the item of the day today is a core item of EDC. For me and for many of you, I've recommended this thing for so long. I bet there are thousands upon thousands of them out there that have been carried until they're worn out or given away and carried and then passed on to somebody else. Uh, but it's the Gerber EAB Lite. EAB stands for exchange blade. This is a little folding razor blade knife that's about the size of a money clip. It clips right inside your pocket or fits in your pocket. You can use it as a money clip to put money on. It uses a standard razor knife razor blade. And uh, they sell for about 11 bucks. And you might wonder why a guy like me that carries, you know, knives that are several hundred dollars and more around carries a $11 razor knife. Well, because it's always sharp, and I don't have to take my custom knife and stick it into the gooey tape on top of the Amazon box, or if I'm hacking apart some crap that's going to dull the shit out of a knife, I can use this cheap knife unless I need something better. It always works, and it's always sharp, and take a screw out and flip it around, and then the other side's sharp. And for 11 bucks, you can buy the knife, and for 11 bucks you can buy, or 10 bucks, you can buy a box of 100 blades. And you can flip that blade once a week and then throw it away every other week. And you can have a razor-sharp blade in your knife for over two years. That's why. Because I can't think of a, a, of something better than that. I love having that available. I also love this as a way to spread prepping. Since it's cheap, you will inevitably pull that out and use it somewhere. And your friend or buddy who thinks you're crazy because you're a prepper will go, What's that? And you'll show it to him. he will like, Wow, I should get one of those. And then you can go, I will give this to you if you will do me a favor. And they'll say, Well, what? So you don't have to keep asking me for a knife. Carry it. I'll even tell you what kind of blades to get for it, and when it gets dull, put new blades in it and carry it. And every time that person uses it, which will be a lot, because don't you ever notice the people that say, why do you carry a knife, are always the ones asking you for a knife? Um, They'll think of you and you're crazy prepping, and maybe you're not so crazy. It's one of the best uh, ways to evangelize prepping I've seen. I do have one caution with this. When you take that blade out and it's dull to you, it's still sharp and can still cause damage. What I used to do is put a piece of tape on them and then throw them in the garbage. What I started doing now is I take like a pill bottle, uh, like an an ibuprofen bottle or something like that, uh, and I keep it in my junk drawer where I keep my dispenser with all my fresh blades. Whenever I get rid of a blade, I have to go there to get a new blade. That way everything's in the same place. So I open it, pull that bottle out, pop the top off of it. Take the blade off, drop the blade in, put the top back on, get a new blade, put it in the knife, call it my life. When the bottle gets full, throw it away. Here's why. I would feel like crap, let's say, if my dog decided to eat the garbage, which occasionally happens, if my dog got all cut up. Or I got cut up, or my wife got cut up carrying the garbage to the garbage can. Or if the garbage men that take away my garbage got hurt. It just seems like it's such an easy, simple thing to do to be responsible. So please add that. But if you do not... You know, I don't usually say if you don't own something, you're wrong. I think if you don't own the Gerber EAB or something like it and make it part of your you you are wrong. Because... Dulling your good full-size knife or mucking it up when you don't have to and not always having something sharp as a razor, I think, is a mistake when it's so easily remedied. And once you start carrying one, you you never even think about it. They're so small until you need it, and then you're always glad that it's there. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, We wrap up the week, and this is a great song for me today because today's show, like I said, I felt like I rambled a little bit, but there's a lot of nostalgia in this. There's a reason that I'm the guy that when people start getting really techy with guns, especially from a tactical standpoint, I'm like, you know what? I got a couple of really nice ARs, and I got a really nice AK, and it's there, and if I need it, it's there, and I like to shoot them. And But talk to me about a old lever gun. Talk to me about old school 760 like my old man carried with the metal butt plate on it. Talk to me about that. Pre sixty four, beautiful pre sixty four Winchester. My great uncle got had, and I'm kind of envious of my cousin that got it instead of me. Talk to me about that. And the reason is, the way I grew up to me is is something so special, and I'm so I'm so grateful that it that really I am not the last generation to grow up like that. It's, it's rare today, but there are still kids getting to grow up that way, and that's what this song's about. And as many of you know, the part of my life I'm talking about today with the guns came from Pennsylvania in my my teens, where I went out to high school. But before that, we lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And I lived, as a kid, I lived in the swamps. I didn't live in the swamps, but I lived in the swamps. As soon as I got home on a weekend, all summer long, my friends and I spent it in the swamps, hunting with BB guns, fishing, doing all kinds of crap we weren't supposed to do. And today's song is called You Ain't Just Whistling Dixie. It's by the Bellamy Brothers. And they mention a lot of places. And I'll tell you why song songwriters mention a lot of places in their songs. They know that everybody from there will have an affinity with that song when they hear it. But what they're really talking about is rural Florida where they grew up. And the a lot of this song is very autobiographical where they talk about mom pulling a bucket of water out of the creek to wash clothes because... There's a problem with the water to the house and the well went dry is is absolutely factual from their childhood. Now I didn't grow up the way they did. They grew up where they were very rural and they actually lived kind of, you know, one step away from off grid in, in Podunk Nowhereville, Florida. I grew up in Jacksonville. But as a kid, Jacksonville was a lot smaller of a place than it is today as far as its development. It's gotten so much bigger. And we lived kind of right at the edge. And I could go back in those swamps anytime I want. Hunt bullfrogs and torment alligators. And we did way more alligator tormenting than we should have ever gotten away with. And we're lucky we didn't get bit or killed. Run around with snakes. Take stupid risks with water moccasins. And fish. Oh, the fishing guys. We fished all the time. But there's this... One part of this, this song that just doesn't work for me anymore. I know what happened to those places. I can look on Google Earth and Google Images. And when I look this song up on Song Facts, the place they grew up in, this little town, it's gone through a lot of the same transformation. But I get the feeling Darby, Florida today is is probably, which is what the song's really about, is Darby, Florida, where they grew up. It's probably quite a bit like my part of Jacksonville, Florida was forty years ago. And that you can still find these places. I haven't been back to Jacksonville. My wife and I vacation in Florida all the time. We go to a place called Sanibel. There's a part of me that never wants to go to Jacksonville again. Not to the part I grew up in. Because I know it's all gone. I know they put up housing developments. They drain the swamp. The little ditch that I used to fish in and catch bass and catfish out of it's gone now that there's not even any water in it anymore it's all gone i want to remember it the way that it was this song's called you ain't just whistling dixie and it makes me long for those days and there's a lot of pennsylvania where i grew up it's the same way now it's all been taken away and all i can think of when i think about that is the places where it hasn't been taken away let's not let them take it away let's preserve something we're blessed in this country. People think of, like, you know, how developed the United States is, but we have more wilderness per capita and per acre in this country than just about anywhere else left in the world other than, like, Siberia. There's a lot left. If you ever get a chance to own a piece of it and to shepherd it, to take care of it, make sure it stays in the family for generation upon generation, just like the gun collection. Preserve what's left because if we don't, Progress will continue to progress, and that's not necessarily always good. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Pine trees grow so tall in the bright sunshine The young boy steals his daddy's fishing line Alligator lays on the banks of a Bend. if you didn't know any better You'd swear he's dead Now these are a few things I'm in love with A small part of the reason I go back Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, gorgeous Georgia. Now, if you think I'm happy down there, you're on the right track. And you ain't just whistling, Dixie, You ain't just lapping your knee. I'm a grandson of the Southland. And if Cause a cattle call. the garden hose. Mama draws a bucket full of creek water just to wash our clothes Now these are a few things I'm in love with A small part of the reason I go back To Carolina Mississippi, Florida, gorgeous Georgia. Now, if you think I'm happy down there, you're on the right track. And you ain't just whistling, and mixing. And you ain't just laughing your knees. Cause the cattle call